Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the Sabbath day. I pray that your spirit would be with us in a special way as we open up your word. And I pray that your spirit would speak through me and that hearts and minds would be convicted of your message for this hour. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I said earlier, I do believe we are living in the very last days of Earth's history. And we have a wonderful Savior, Jesus, who didn't want us to be in the dark as to what would happen down at the end of time. Amen? And Jesus has given us some very clear instruction to know how to live our lives and to know what time we are living in based on things he has said all through Scripture. But what I want to look at today is a parable found in Matthew chapter 25 that describes God's last day people. It's the parable of the bridegroom, the ten virgins. Now, how do I know that this parable is about God's last day people? The reason I know that Jesus gave this parable to describing the people down at the very end of time is because in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And we know that Jesus mixed the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world together. And at the end of that description, he tells three parables that describes God's last day people. The first one is the wise and the evil servant. That's the end of Matthew chapter 24. And then when we come to Matthew chapter 25, he elucidates this even more clearly in chapter 25 by saying, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. And the pioneers of the Advent movement understood this to be the case, that Matthew chapter 25 was a continuation of Matthew chapter 24. So when Jesus talked about the bridegroom and the ten virgins, he was talking about God's last day people. So that sets the stage for us to understand this parable. Now, if this parable is describing God's last day people, don't you think it's important that we study it carefully and know the purpose that Jesus had behind this parable when he told it? I think it's very important. And I know some of us have studied this parable before, but I hope as we look at it again, perhaps you'll see something fresh and something new that you've never seen before. Starting in Matthew chapter 25, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, verse 1 has so much information in it. First of all, we see that the kingdom of heaven is being described here. So this is describing God's people. Specifically, they're being compared to ten virgins. Now, when you think of a woman in the Bible, what does a woman in the Bible represent? represents a church. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the pure woman who represents God's people in the last days. Revelation chapter 17 talks about a woman who does not represent God's people. 
in the last days. And the description and how those women are described, the way they dress, the way they appear, you can see a clear difference between God's people and those who are not. So a woman represents God's people in Bible prophecy. And here we have ten virgins. Now, when you think of a virgin, you think of someone who is pure. So this represents a pure church. Ten virgins, a pure church. And it says, they took their lamps and went forth to meet the brethren. Now, what's a lamp? In Psalms 119.105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So here you have a pure church in the last days that are Bible-believing. They have the word of God, and they're going forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, if this is the last days, and this church is going forth to meet the bridegroom, first of all, who is the bridegroom? How do we know that it's Jesus? John chapter 3, John the Baptist specifically refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. So when we say the bridegroom is Jesus, we need to have the Bible to back our answer up. And John chapter 3 clearly tells us that. So here we have a pure church that's Bible-believing, going forth to meet Jesus in the last days. Now, if this is talking about God's church in the last days going forth to meet Jesus, what would this be talking about? They would be coming in their minds to meet Jesus the second time. Because clearly Jesus is telling this parable after he's come the first time. So this is talking about a pure church, Bible-believing, knowing that Jesus is coming soon, going forth to meet him. And notice what verse 2 says. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Now tell me something. If you know from the Bible that Jesus is coming soon, how is it possible to be foolish? Think about that for a minute. A Bible-believing, pure church knowing that Jesus is coming soon, and yet there is a group within that church described as being foolish. Something to think about. Now let's keep reading here the next two verses they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps let's talk about the foolish virgins first what does it say here that the foolish virgins were lacking in this parable they were lacking the oil now what's the oil the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know that? Is there a place in the Bible that tells us that? Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, talks about oil representing the Holy Spirit. And in the interest of time, we're not going to read all these verses, but write the verses down and you can go back later if you haven't seen this already. So think about this. There's a group of people in God's church who have a knowledge of the Bible, but they don't have the Holy Spirit to guide their understanding of the truths found in Scripture. So these people are described as foolish. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do for us in our lives as we study the Bible? 
the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds so we can understand what we're reading. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So those who are lacking the Holy Spirit, even though they have a knowledge of the Bible, really aren't guided into a complete knowledge of truth. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit does a, a work of regeneration and renewal within our hearts. And so it's possible to have a knowledge of the Bible without being renewed and transformed by the very principles that are found within the Scripture. So the foolish virgins had no oil, lacking the Holy Spirit, and they were not able to discern the truths of Scripture completely. And we're going to come back to the foolish virgins a little later. Let's look at the wise virgins. It says, But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So at the end of time, there will be a group of people within God's church who are wise. They have that transforming experience transformed by the Spirit of God. They are loving and lovable Christians, and they know the Bible, and they are going forth to meet Jesus. And that's the kind of person I want to be, amen? I want to be like Jesus. I want to have his character, his love, his grace, his mercy. Now, is there a place in the Bible that talks about wise people in the last days? We've already established that this is a parable of God's church down at the end of time. But is there another place in Scripture that talks about wise people down at the end of time? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So the wise shall understand something. What do they understand? Here in the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel to seal up the words of the vision till when? The time of the end. And the wise at the time of the end will understand what that vision's talking about. Interesting. So... God's last day people who are described as being wise, they have a knowledge of the Bible, full of the Holy Spirit, and they understand the prophecies of Daniel, especially relating to prophecies that point to the time of the end. And we just studied about one of those prophecies in our lesson today, the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14. Now, is there any other description of the wise in the Bible? Well, actually, in the same chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, it says, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You know, wise people in the last days, they're going to be turning many people to righteousness. They're going to be turning many people to a true knowledge of what it means to have Christ covering us with his righteousness. And those people are described as being wise. 
And these people understand what righteousness is because they have an understanding of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Those who are not wise, who lack the Holy Spirit, will twist the prophecies, they'll twist Scripture. And we've seen that happen in our church. Desmond Ford, throughout Daniel 8.14, says it doesn't talk about the sanctuary. He was someone who was pretty foolish. And we want to be wise. We want to be people who understand this message and are wise virgins in the last day. Now, I want to keep going here. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And then in verse 5 it says, While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. How is it possible when you believe that Jesus is coming soon to fall asleep and waiting for that time? Now notice, it didn't say the foolish virgins only fell asleep. It said they all fell asleep. And it took something to wake them up. And in verse 6, we call this the midnight cry. And the midnight cry woke these people up. Now I, I ask you, in the history of the world, has there been a group of people that fulfilled this parable? Was there a group of people who were a pure church, a Bible-believing church, believing that Jesus was coming soon, who were wise? They understood the prophecies of Daniel, and they preached the soon return of Jesus, and many were turned to righteousness. Has there been a time in this earth's history that that parable came to be fulfilled? 1844, in the years preceding that, the Millerite movement, this parable was fulfilled specifically in that movement between the years 1832 to 1844. And an interesting quote, Ellen White um, substantiates this. She says, this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. So this parable has been fulfilled to the very letter. There were a group of people who went forth to meet the bridegroom. And within that group, there were wise and foolish virgins. Now, just some history in the Millerite movement. And I would love to see a revival of that type of a movement in our church today. Amen? It's very rare to hear messages in such a way that the way they were preached back in the time of 1844. I, I wish that I could go back and hear some of William Miller's sermons and some of the other pioneers. I can only imagine. L listen to some of these statistics. William Miller, who God, God raised up to start this movement, between the years 1832 to 1844, preached... So in 12 years... In 12 years, William Miller preached 4,000 
500 sermons. Can you imagine that? And he preached these 4,500 sermons to 4,000 different communities. And not only that, guess how many different people heard him preach during those 12 years? 500,000 people. 500,000 people over a period of 12 years heard William Miller preach about the soon return of Jesus. And from Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 4 by Leroy Froome, here is a description of how William Miller preached. People remembered his fervent words and his influence upon his audience was profound. Men sat chained to their seats, as it were, as he expounded, pleaded, and warned. Often his audiences listened to his solemn climaxes with the stillness of death. These climatic exhortations were unusually powerful, and always his emphasis on the last days was used to lead men to repent and believe and prepare for that great day. Those are the types of sermons we need to hear today. We need to hear sermons that talk about the time that we're living in, the last days, Jesus is coming soon, and preached in such a way that hearts will be melted to love Jesus, to repent and give everything in their hearts to him, so that when Jesus does come, they will be ready and they will be among the wise virgins. And William Miller was used by God to help a people prepare for a very special time. Now, within this Millerite movement, the Millerite movement preached the first and second angel's message, and they also gave what is known as the midnight cry. Now, what about the message of the Millerites? Fulfilled the parable and fulfilled the first and second angel's messages. Well, first of all, in verse 1, we can see the concepts of the first angel's message, a Bible-believing, pure church going forth to meet Jesus. And for 12 years, throughout that entire time, William Miller was preaching from Revelation 14, 6, and 7 that the hour of his judgment has come, that it was time to meet Jesus. And they believed that that was talking about the second coming. So within this movement, the first angel's message was fulfilled But it really began to reach its climax around the time period of 1840. Around 1840, William Miller was preaching at a a small chapel somewhere in the northeast, and someone by the name of Joshua V. Himes heard him preach. Now, this Joshua Himes happened to be a pastor of one of the large churches in Boston, And up until 1840, William Miller had not really hit the big cities. He was preaching in lots of small towns around the Northeast. He would just take whichever invitation came first. And he wasn't really following a strategic pattern to reach a large number of people with this important message. So after Joshua Himes heard William Miller preach one night, he came up to William Miller and said, Do you really believe what you're preaching? And William Miller said, Absolutely. Why would I have spent the last eight years doing this? Then Joshua Himes is like, well, Brother Miller, what are you doing to get this out to the world? William Miller said, well, I'm one man. I can only do so much. And after that, the movement took off. Joshua Himes invited William Miller to preach in Boston. Joshua Himes developed a whole set of publications with 
newspapers that were printed in all the large cities, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and the Millerite movement gained front press front page coverage in the press. In fact, during the election of James K. Polk versus Henry Clay, they were sharing front page headlines with William Miller. That's how much of an impact this movement made on the world at that time. And you know, Seventh-day Adventists today, we need to make that kind of an impact again. We need to get out of our little comfort zone our little box, and we need to go to the world like the Millerites did. We need someone like a Joshua Himes to come and wake our sleeping church up and say, do you really believe what you're preaching? If so, what are you doing about it? Are you just going to keep it to the small groups and then the rest of the world will not hear what we have to say? And then in the summer of 1844, Josiah Litch using the principles of prophetic interpretation that the Millerites used, the day-year principle. He accurately predicted from Revelation 9.15 that the 391 years and 15 days would be fulfilled on August 11, 1840, that the Ottoman Turks, they had started their empire on July 27, 1449. Thus, according to the sixth trumpet prophecy, they would fall on August 11, 1840. And guess what? It happened on that day. And you know, you know what that did for the movement? The movement, the people who believed what William Miller was preaching, if that prophecy came true according to this principle, then if Jesus is coming at the end of the 2300 days, he's coming in three or four years. And the movement really took off after that, after 1840. People's hearts were stirred. Jesus is coming soon. What am I doing? How am I living my life? Am I just living business as usual? Clocking in and out, worrying about how much money I'm going to make? Or am I sharing this message to the world? And am I, am I living my life in such a way that when Jesus comes, I will be identified with the faithful? And so the movement grew. Conservative estimates place the number of believers at 50,000. Other reports put it up to a million. But a conservative estimate is at least 50,000 people just within the northeast down to about the area of Ohio believed this message. And then they met with what was known as the first or early disappointment in the spring of 1844. Because you see, initially they did not understand completely the implications of the prophecies that they were um, saying. And they forgot about no zero year between B.C. and A.D. So they put everything at 1843. And they reasoned that by the spring of 1844, Jesus would come. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. And if you read about some of William Miller's sermons shortly after that time, he was even confused. And he would, he would go back and forth between saying, I know I'm right, and saying, but I know something's wrong. And he couldn't put the two together. And during that time, Ellen White tells us that the wise and the foolish were separated out after the spring of, of 1844. Because what had happened was, there was a true group of believers within this movement who really believed that Jesus was coming soon. 
And there was another group who joined the movement who joined it because of the excitement that the movement generated. They were not grounded themselves in the teachings of the Bible. They lacked the oil of the Holy Spirit. And so when the disappointment came, they were the first to leave. And this was before October 22. And by that time, the persecution of the movement had spread greatly. And even those who were grounded in the message are described in this parable as slumbering and sleeping. And the reason being is that they still believed that Jesus was coming soon, but they lost their fervor and zeal because they didn't really know when Jesus was going to come. Could it be possible that many of us here today have lost our fervor and zeal for the soon coming of Jesus? It's not something that we are living and breathing and thinking about every day of the week. And I can assure you the Millerites, when they were here, they truly believed with all their hearts that Jesus was coming soon. And not a day went by when they didn't talk about it and when they didn't share it to others. And the same should be true for us. But I know all of us, like the Millerites, we have all fallen asleep. We get caught up in our work, in our relationships, in the things of this life, and we forget that Jesus is coming soon. Something needs to wake us up. And I pray that it will be soon. And you know, something woke the Millerites up. And whenever I read this story, my heart burns within me. There was a camp meeting August 12 through 17, 1844, held in Exeter, New Hampshire. And this camp meeting would change the history of the Millerite movement. This, as the story goes, Joseph Bates, who became one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church after 1844, was preaching a sermon to the Millerites, and there was a large number of people there, and he was going through the same truths that they had heard many times before, and people were not really getting a lot out of the sermon, to be quite honest with you. It was just another one of those, I've heard this before, sermons. And about the time that he was preaching, someone by the name of Samuel S. Snow came upon horseback and came into the congregation. And he came and sat down on the front row next to his sister and said, I have new light for this camp meeting. And his sister had the audacity to stand up in the middle of Elder Bates' sermon and say, Brother Bates, we've heard enough of your sermon. Someone here has new light. Let them get up front and preach. <laughs> now, you know what the funny thing is, is if you read Joseph Bates' autobiography about this incident, Tim just gave me the book for my birthday, Joseph Bates doesn't tell that story. And I, I don't know why, but he doesn't. Um, but all the other historians that talk about this camp meeting tell this story, how Joseph Bates stepped off the pulpit and let Samuel Snow come up and give what would be a very convicting and compelling message. And this is what Samuel Snow's message was. When Jesus came to this earth in the spring festivals, Passover, the wave sheaf offering, and then Pentecost. Each one of those f festivals, the type and the antitype met on the very day. 
So Jesus, the Passover lamb, died on Passover Friday. He was resurrected on Sunday as the wave sheaf offering of first fruits. Then 50 days later, the early rain was poured out on the day of Pentecost. So each one of those types met their antitype on the very day. And he logically went through that. And then he said, for the day of atonement, if you study out the Jewish calendar, the antitype or the, the literal day is October 22, 1844. And then he said, just as surely as Jesus fulfilled these types when he came the first time, he's going to come right on time the second time. And the electricity that went through that audience and that spread through the Northeast after that camp meeting can never be measured. In fact, the word on everyone's lips after that camp meeting was, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. We need messages like that again today. We need to have camp meetings like that again today where people are stirred to truly believe that Jesus is coming soon. And what's interesting is William Miller and some of the other leaders did not accept the October 22 date until the very month of October. So they were a little bit behind the rest of the movement. But the thing that convinced them was seeing how this parable was being fulfilled before their very eyes. Now, in closing, I'm running out of time here, but what I want to say in closing, I read this quote from Ellen White earlier where she said, this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. Now, we have seen from history how this parable has been fulfilled. I want to see this parable fulfilled again. How about you? I want to live in a time when God's people go forth to meet the bridegroom. And this time, Jesus really is coming. There is no mistaking about it. After 1844, the Seventh-day Adventist Church rose out of the great disappointment. We gained a greater understanding of the Seventh-day Sabbath, the sanctuary message, health reform, dress reform, all of these things came to a clearer light. And the Adventist Church got off to a powerful start. But here we are, 162 years after 1844. And I'm not going out on a limb to say that the bridegroom has tarried and all of us are slumbering and sleeping. I'm not going out on a limb to say that because all of us have lost that fervor and zeal that the Millerites had in the time of 1844. There's not one of us here today, and myself included, that has the same intensity, that has the same zeal, that has the same fervor that guided the Millerites up to October 22, 1844. And as I look at that parable, even the Millerites within that movement fell asleep, every one of them, William Miller included. All of them fell asleep. And someone had to come and wake them up. Friends, someone here today, by God's grace, needs to come and wake God's sleeping church up. 
Someone needs to give the midnight cry. We need to have an awakening in our hearts of the soon return of Jesus. And I believe that God has been doing his best in the last few years to try to wake his sleeping church up. And that's why I would encourage you to come to Southwest Youth Conference this year. Our theme this year is Let It Rain. We're praying for the outpouring of the latter rain. If you want to have that experience and if you want to be part of it, you know, the people who gained the greatest blessing from the Millerite movement were the ones who went to the camp meetings and heard the messages for themselves. And so, as I look at God's church today, we need to have someone come and give the midnight cry. But the problem is, we are so wrapped up in the cares of this life, our jobs, our careers, getting through medical school, dental school, school of public health, pharmacy school, any other school that I didn't mention, all of them. We, and I know because I've been through this whole thing myself and I'm still very much in the midst of being very busy. But something needs to come and shake us and wake us up because we are all sleeping. And, you know, speaking to some of you guys out there, I mean, I can say this because I had this experience growing up, watching sports for three hours every night, then ten minutes of devotions before you go to bed. You're sound asleep. That's not living in preparation for Jesus to come. If, like Eric Walsh said so clearly last week, if we know the starting lineups of all of our favorite teams, but we don't even know the principles of our faith, we're sound asleep. And the Millerites knew their Bibles. They knew what they believed. They were Bible-believing, Spirit-filled Christians. And it's not enough to say, well, I have the Spirit of God and I believe, if you don't even know what you believe. How can you say that you believe in Jesus, and yet you're spending more time with the things of this world? And... About five years ago, I I grew under the conviction that if I was going to be preparing for Jesus to come, sports is something that I needed to put out of my life. And by God's grace, he's given me the victory. And there's other things he still needs to give me the victory over. But that's just one example. And, you know, the Millerites, they were known. If you looked at them, you knew that they were a Christian. The way they dressed, the way they ate, everything about them was very distinct. They lived their lives in such a way that you knew that they were children of God, bought with a price, and they were ready to meet Jesus. And that's the way we need to be today. Jesus has bought us with a price. He died on the cross for us. Every part of our lives, whether it's our dress, our food, our entertainment, all of that should be surrendered to God as we prepare for Jesus to come. And so... I'm looking forward to the time when the midnight cry is given again. And I pray that it's when I'm alive. I want to be part of that. I want to be among the people who, by God's grace, help to give that message that wakes up a sleeping church, that wakes up a sleeping world. And we, are, and we call God's people out of Babylon into the remnant church. And that day is going to come very, very soon. And so I pray that each one of us 
We'll be praying to God today that God will wake us up, that he will help us to put those things out of our lives that are distracting us from being ready to meet Jesus. And so as we close with prayer, I just encourage you to think throughout the rest of the Sabbath, throughout the rest of this week, how am I with God? How do I stand before him today? Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. Have I give him, given him everything in my heart? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for calling us to be wise people in the last days. People who understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. People who turn many to righteousness. People who will sound a message that will wake up a sleeping church. And I pray that if there's anything in our hearts and in our lives today that has separated us from you, that we will come to you with repentance, that we will surrender that to you, and that when people see us, they will know that we are Christians. They will see the love of Jesus in our hearts. They will see the power of the gospel that has transformed our lives. And they will see by the example that we set that we really do believe that Jesus is coming soon. So I pray that each one of us will wake up and that Jesus will come soon. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.